This Choircast podcast is brought to you by the book, Too Much and Not Enough, Sacred Thoughts Said Out Loud by Karen Schock. This book is for anyone who has big questions about God and is feeling like a misfit among the people who seem to have it all figured out. Journey with me as we dive into the hard stuff and ask the questions no one else seems to want to ask. We will laugh and cry together. You will shake your head along with me as you read the real stories of anxiety and depression, parenting and marriage, and just plain living this life in the messy middle. I don't have all the answers, but my hope in writing this book is that you, the reader, will feel seen. There is a God who is big enough to handle all of our questions and more loving than we can ever imagine. Let's lean into this life together as we learn how to love and be loved in Too Much and Not Enough. Available now on Amazon. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We're so glad that you're here. How come all of a sudden I sound like like a cheesy infomercial guy? <laughs> we're glad you've joined us today. Uh, we have a lot going on, John. Did you were you aware we had a lot going on? I was not aware, but thank you for making me aware. Allow me to make you aware that this is a podcast, by the way, oh, okay. that we call this is not church because, like, we like to remind people if this was church, you would have left by now, and uh, we we would agree with you. But we're here today uh, again. My name is Nat. I am one of your two. Uh, host, you get two, and with me as always is my 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 dapper older brother John. Say, uh, dapper Dan, John. Dapper Dan, John. All right, wasn't, wasn't that fr- wasn't that the name of the of the dapper like Dan. the hair gel that the dude like in yeah, uh, in uh, oh brother where art thou? Yeah, because like I don't want pomade. I'm a dapper Dan man. I'm a da- <laughs> well, ain't this a, ain't this a geographical oddity? Two weeks from everywhere. <laughs> All right. If you haven't seen a brother, where art thou? Come on, man. You got to go get with it, man. Get some culture. We were just talking about culture. Apparently, people need to get some culture. But uh, as always, we are here and we get to have amazing guests. And today is no exception. So let me take a second and introduce you to who we're going to talk to. And then we'll get into a conversation with Sarah Hen Hayward. So let me read you a little bit about her and we'll get jumped in. Uh, Sarah Hen Hayward has been writing since she Cracked open her first Quiet Town devotional journal. Sarah grew up in, in the Chicago suburbs, went to Marquette University for physical therapy, and moved to Spokane, Washington, where she met her husband and grew their family. They love camping in the Pacific Northwest, and they take advantage of their beautiful surroundings as much as possible. After her deconstruction and departure from the faith of her youth, Sarah felt lost and adrift. Being a Christian was the foundation of her identity, giving, a, giving her life purpose and meaning. She turned to books for comfort, when the progressive voices fell flat and the and the atheistic approaches to life couldn't relate to her grief, she began writing her own spiritual memoir, which I believe is called Giving Up God, correct? And uh, I believe it is out and available. Um, but we are here today to talk about that. And welcome to the podcast. Sarah, how are you? Thanks. Yes, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, guys. I'm doing well. We're, we're glad to have you. If you wouldn't mind, kind of our traditional opening salvo of a question is just to kind of get a little more background on people because what I just read is it's pretty clinical. But uh, so if you don't mind, maybe fill us, fill us in a little bit on like the spiritual journey, what kind of dragged you, you know, brought you to the place where you are now, deconstructed or deconstructing still, however you look at it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in the Midwest, in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, and I was raised by two Christian parents who had kind of converted to Christianity a little bit later in their own lives, shortly uh, or while they were getting married and before having me. And so they raised us in church from my earliest memories. We were there every Sunday. I did Awanas growing up and memorized all those verses. We were part of youth group, went on a mission trip uh, with the youth group and my faith was always a huge part of my life, just time-wise and energy-wise, but it also meant a lot to me. I, I took my faith very seriously and I, I was in it. I really believed it. And I, I felt that God knew me personally and that God loved me. And that gave me a lot of uh, value and a strong sense of worth. And I really still to this day, although I've now kind of left, I credit my faith for forming me in ways that I'm grateful for, that I'm glad to be who I am. And I think a lot of it's because of the way I was raised. So I I feel like a a fortunate one. I dodged a bullet because I know religion can hurt 
a lot of people and a lot of people have religious trauma and, you know, it certainly could have gone a myriad of other ways. But for me, it was overall, honestly, a positive experience. I have really good friends that I made through youth group and then later in college ministry. And so faith and religion for me was a very overall positive experience. But as I grew, I I grew up going to an evangelical uh, faith, which was fairly conservative. Although as I've met more folks doing talks like these, I've realized the evangelicals were not as conservative as some of the more really fundamentalist groups. So again, dodged a bullet. But as I went away to college, I went to Marquette University, which is Jesuit. And so they're more focused on social justice. And so that was the first time I really uh, had my faith expanded outside of just that personal relationship with Christ, just me and, and God into more of how is everyone else doing? And where do I need to be serving and be God's hands and feet? And so Marquette really kind of opened my eyes to suffering around the globe and social justice issues, which I'm also still very grateful for. Just being at college, I started asking more questions. I started meeting people that were different from folks I'd grown up with. I was lucky enough to travel abroad. I spent a semester in Australia and I met a ton of Muslim kids on my campus there in Australia. There's a ton of a lot of people from a lot of the Asian countries that are predominantly Muslim living in Australia. So just, you know, meeting people thinking, gosh, they they sound a lot like me, but they belong to this totally other religion. And what does that mean? They they seem to believe as fervently as I do. And so just, you know, thread by thread, the sweater kind of started to unravel over a long period of time, decades. I met friends who were gay and so started asking, gosh, could this really be a sin that doesn't feel right that they shouldn't be allowed to just love who they love and marry who they want to marry. And in that process, it didn't feel like I was going... It did not feel like... I I didn't see what was coming. It didn't feel like it was unraveling. It just felt like I was evolving and growing and my faith was expanding and, and becoming more progressive. But then within the last couple of years, uh, during kind of the pandemic, I had been laid off from my job and found myself with a lot of free time and the world was burning and everything was on fire and seemed horrible with all the racial tension exploding around the country again. And just everything felt so dire, you know, for a while politically and just all of it. And so that got me really asking a lot of questions about God and God's existence, which I had never really gone there before. Uh, And as I dug deep into those questions and didn't shy away, I found to me, they led me to a place of disbelief. I just couldn't get behind the idea of something in charge of all this, doing this on purpose. (laughs) It just kind of fell apart. And so that's when I had my big identity crisis and kind of schism of faith and found myself writing a book to process it and also to blindly grope out and reach for somebody else like me. I said, there's got to be others who were super into it, hardcore Christians. It wasn't just a little side thing, hobby. It was my life uh, who have now totally left it all behind. So that's where I'm at today. And the book has been great for that. I have had other people reach out and say hello. And I've met some folks in the same boat. So that's been comforting. It is interesting though, because that was one of the uh, things that concerned me, you know, and uh, was, was it like leaving what what felt like community you know, on some level, even if it was dysfunctional and sometimes toxic, it was still, it was still family, right? And then would I find that out here in, in the wild? And, and it, I should have been nervous. I did, you know, and you, what's interesting too is then you can find, you can find people in this space of deconstruction, um, whether or not we still like that term or not. I, I still find it functional. So I use it, but we're not married to at least, at least the way that I've experienced it is not married to any specific thing here. Like everyone's like the the unifying thing here is not how we recon, how we deconstruct it's that we are deconstructing, and so everyone has kind of gone about this at their own you know in their own way. Different things have led them to these places, and so those those narratives aren't as important. Whereas on the other side of that, it always felt like like those friendships were maintained by being in in, in some sort of unity about all kinds of th- things like that. And once those, I, I like the way you describe that sort of sweater becoming unraveled because that's how it felt, right? And as those threads began to come loose, a lot of those relationships fell away. And, you know, my wife and I were sort of talking about that and lamenting through some of it. I'm like, you know what, how, but how close were those friendships really? If they were, if they were predicated on, we have to agree on these things. And once I, once I no longer affirmed 
certain things, at certain friendships fell apart. I'm like, well, that mm-hmm. seems like a pretty superficial reason to still be friends. Yeah. yeah, it's very conditional. Like, like, or or sometimes it was just a matter of proximity. Like, okay, we go to church together and we see each other every week, and so therefore we're friendly. Once that once that place of of, of meeting is no longer normal, uh, oh wow, look at that, we were. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, kind of hard to maintain friendships with people that you're only friends with because you're in a certain space. But what, what has been, if you could, if you could pinpoint it, one of the, like some of the bigger challenges? I know for everyone it's a little different, but was, was yours more to do with like leaving a place of some certainty and going into a place of, of not knowing a lot or were there other issues at play? Do you mean the challenge after deciding or the challenge yeah, of yeah. getting to that point? Yeah. Well, um, both for either one, honestly. Sure. Yeah. I'll, the first challenge for me in terms of of belief and the reason I had to kind of walk away, it really came down to looking at the world that we have and seeing how it is for so many, myself excluded kind of. I am a pretty much middle-class white person in America. I'm close to the top of the ladder. You know, my life is pretty good. I haven't dealt with a ton of suffering. I'm sure I've had things happen, but but I, as I had traveled the world and as I see my eyes were more open to just reality for people that don't look like me or don't have my experience, it just made me wonder, like, how could a God that defines themselves as love design this world this way on purpose, knowing it would be this way when they had all the power in the world to do it differently? And I can think of ways it could have done it better. <laughs> like, am I more creative than God? Am I more loving than God? It just stopped adding up. And... I used to use the excuse of free will to explain suffering and that kind of fell apart as I've gotten into some really heady theological uh, arguments against free will, which I don't know totally where I land on that, but certainly you can make a case that many of our decisions aren't entirely autonomous. They seem to come at us through influences and, and things like that. So the old excuses just didn't work anymore. And I just got to a point where I thought, I can't continue to verbally dedicate my life to something that I'm not sure exists. My husband and I are not on the same page now on this. And that has been, to your second question, the hardest part since making my very public decision to leave and write a whole book about it. And for him, he kind of doesn't care if God is exactly real or not. To him, it's still useful. It can still help guide his you know, decisions and behavior and, and things like that. Um, but to me, I just... Yeah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't live my life according to the will of this other being without being sure that that being was there. So that was my... It was really an intellectual break for me. It wasn't personal, emotional disappointment or you know, seeing the hypocrisy in the church. There's plenty of other reasons why people might leave. But for me, it was just kind of the cognitive piece. It just stopped adding up. And then, yeah, that has been hard most more than anything else that it's now my husband and I are not on the same page. We're not equally yoked, which was so oh, no. important. <laughs> <laughs> it just means you can't date a girl who's not a Christian because then, you know, you'll be going in different directions and that doesn't work. And well, and that's, he's now married to a girl who's not a Christian. And yeah. Mark that one down in the, uh, in the purity culture sort of mm-hmm. handbook of things to say to people. Thou shalt not be, it's like it's the 11th mm-hmm. commandment. Thou shalt yes. not be unequally yoked. Uh-huh. And I do think how strong that was rammed down our throats back in oh, the day. Oh man, it was harsh. Yeah, it was That's rough. That's making this really hard. That's not even what that meant. It's not even what that <laughs> verse was about. Well, you can't be shocked that they they took a verse out of context and used it to shame you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, that seems like it's right out of the evangelical Never playbook, happened man. Before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I find it interesting, uh, you know, as you talked about your deconstruction, uh, to, to where you are now, because a couple of things that Nat and I have heard and been told, and it comes up from time and time again, is a lot of deconstruction comes from a place of trauma, right? Um, that mm-hmm. it is a really bad, uh, like my escape from the church is not because I liked it too much. It was because they were horrific people and I had to get away from it. But what you're, you're looking at it almost more from like a intellectual standpoint, almost from the beginning, like there isn't any, like a lot of trauma that you had going through your, to your church years. Uh, so I think that kind of goes against the grain of a lot of people. Like you just, you just were in the wrong church. It was a bad church. Right. Um, so I or it's like, not God you don't believe in. It's right. the church, right. the humans like, hmm? 
So it's interesting that you you that that you say that honestly the church wasn't a bad place for you. You you got a lot from it. And as you go through and you start looking at things, you know, intellectually with like like intellectual honesty, you start breaking this down on your own. And it kind of goes in the face of a lot of people exactly what you said. It's like it's not the God that you uh, disagree with. It's it's the bad church you're involved with. And um so what were the steps? I mean, were they, were they small steps? And they, then all of a sudden you look back and you're like, okay, I've, everything has changed from these steps. As you, you, know, you talk about going to a college that's a little bit more justice-oriented, all that kind of stuff, right? Were, they, were there any places where there was a huge step or were they all like little steps? And then as you look back, you're like, okay, this was just the path I've been on. Well, you know, the hindsight is so interesting because things look different now looking backwards again in the moment it did not feel like i was wandering away from faith or from god it felt like i was engaging my faith deeply and and wrestling with it so yeah in the moment none of the steps felt too huge i would say a big one was um and that's kind of the organization of my book i go through each chapter is an issue that fell apart um, so kind of started with universalism and how could all these other religions be wrong after meeting people abroad, then the LGBTQ issue. And really to me, that issue, it wasn't even so much the issue itself, which I 180'd on and decided, I don't think this is a sinful behavior or lifestyle or anything. But the thing that was intimidating there was more, was the Bible wrong? The the things I had been taught about biblical interpretation are wrong, or I seemed you know so that was scary to start questioning that because I did kind of grow up believing in the inerrancy of the Bible, not super mega hardcore, but more or less thought the Bible was accurate and to take it at its word, and so that started making me read the Bible differently and and look at it more in terms of allegory or myth or you know parable. I think one of the biggest issues, a big step, was when I stopped believing in an eternal place of torment and hell and the traditional hell. That felt intimidating because heaven and hell feels like bread and butter of Christianity, you know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so that was kind of scary to throw that one out. But it felt right to think, okay, if God is love, as it says, then I don't think they would do that for eternity to someone who lived a mere... 38 you know, years on earth or 82 years on earth, millions and billions and trillions of years of torment because they didn't use that little blip of time to say the right words. So that one felt fairly pivotal, but still I felt just more true. And I still felt like I was a Christian throughout all of that. It really wasn't until the more recent you know, issue and during the pandemic when I was looking at just all the evils of the world and George Floyd's murder really just made me think about... I had been learning for years about racism in America historically and currently and just the awareness of, again, people who look different than me walk through this world very differently and have a very different reality that they experience oftentimes in a worse off way or you know, a more traumatic way. And to think back through time, if there were so many people who were born enslaved, were owned their whole lives, couldn't marry who they wanted, couldn't eat when and how much they wanted, couldn't keep their babies and died under those same conditions. And that was their whole life. And to think again that some omniscient, all-powerful God knew that that would be the fact of existence for so many millions of people and was okay with it, let alone the Holocaust and other genocides and just all the different terrible things that this planet has seen. That became the big, big friction point that I just couldn't get around. And uh, yeah, so that felt that was the breaking point for me anyway. But leading up to it, it didn't feel like I don't like, you know, the slippery slope argument is used to scare people a lot. Right, right. Investigating, which I think it's a logical fallacy, but it does look like that's what happened to me. It was slowly <laughs> bit by bit until <laughs> off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> well, what they fail to tell you is a slippery slope is a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I used to drag, you know, you know, big pieces of cardboard to the top of that slippery slope and have a hell of a lot of fun <laughs> sliding down. So if they're using that to deter me, they've picked the wrong analogy. <laughs> I'm like, hell yeah, let's let it rip and see what happens. Yeah. But, but I think, I think our, I think our experiences are very similar, you know, because I think for John and I both, I'll speak for myself, I won't speak for you, John, that, that issue of heaven and hell was pivotal, right? And that felt like once that domino fell, like, okay, because, you know, and it, you know, either, like, as you pointed out, it either was the Bible's wrong mm-hmm. or we're reading it wrong mm-hmm. or, 
both, right? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I mean, I think it's enti- entirely likely. Once I stopped looking at the Bible as a divinely downloaded, perfect thing that had to be adhered to and believed in its entirety, and I began to sort of look at it more as a human product and began to see, okay, there's stuff, there, there are things in there that are, that are, that are potentially useful. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that it chronicles, you know, what people thought about God at any specific time and place. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they were right and sometimes they were spectacularly wrong. (laughs) And it's okay to look at the text that way and say, well, given that, what do we do with the information that's in there? Right. Right. And, uh, why in the world would I look at a, at a, at an ancient text for how I should look at, say, human sexuality when, you right. know, when, when they had no clue? They weren't even talking about that. Yeah. Right. That attitude and perspective of the Bible is how I ultimately came to look at the whole thing. The question of God and God's existence in religion was maybe mankind's, you know, tool they were using to wrestle with these big questions of why are we here and what are we doing? And I could see how it could it could be made to be a very man-made thing that we kind of came up with to answer questions that we were creating uh, and to give ourselves a sense of security and some order to the chaos. But maybe it was all created by us in the first place and not some ultimate truth level. I don't know. I am. I do refer to myself as an agnostic atheist. So I'm not like hardcore, God is dead and there's no such thing. I don't know. I don't know the answers to the ultimate mysteries of the universe, but right, the, right. the stuff I'm learning and the things I'm seeing make me hesitant to think that there is something out there in charge of it all. These days I find myself... So if, if, if you would call yourself an agnostic atheist, I would call myself an agnostic theist. Mm-hmm. You know, I do lean towards, I think there's something out there, but I'm no longer compelled to know what that is. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm certainly no longer compelled to try to define it. So I asked my wife, in fact, we had this conversation probably just three or four days ago and sort of the issue, the issue had been sort of running around my head a little bit, but it was like, for me, I'm told my wife, I'm like, for me, none of like the supernatural stuff doesn't matter to me anymore. The question for me is, is the ethic and teaching of Jesus worthwhile on its own. Is that, is that a good, you know, is that a good model to follow? Is loving my enemy and trying to forgive and trying to walk the world, you know, as, as, as an agent of grace and mercy, being tolerant and loving? Are those all things that I can aspire to? And regardless of whether any of the, the faith claims are true or not. And for me, it's like, yeah, I think, I, I absolutely think so. And so, I had run across this term a while back. I didn't realize there was an entire, and I don't think it's huge, but there, there are practicing, you know, sort of atheistic Christians who are ethically and morally followers of Jesus, but who don't give a rip about <laughs> any of the supernatural woo-woo faith claims. They're just like, this is, just turns out for us to be a valid approach to living in the world and, and dealing with our fellow humans in a, in a, in a moral and ethical way. And I'm like, you know what? That resonates with me on some level because mm-hmm. there's too many people who buy off on the spiritual stuff and then totally disregard Jesus. Right. I'd rather I'd rather hang out with those guys <laughs> than those who don't take it. You know, they don't take the hard stuff seriously. They take the easy stuff seriously, right? Right. Pray the because it's easy to make box and you're good. Yeah, easy to yeah. make those claims. Yeah. God is in control. Blah blah blah. Suffering happens because um, God wants it that way. It's not our job to understand why. And then I'm like, that okay? Well, that that's sort of all of that is a cop out. And you're not willing to wrestle with the hard questions. And then on top of that, you don't actually want to put the ethics of Jesus into, into practice because that would require you to um, not hoard wealth and to, right. you know, maybe not Love be judgmental and intolerant of people. Yeah, maybe not, you know, persecute homosexuals and other people that you just don't like. So, yeah, I think I find myself sort of teetering in that camp right now going, okay, um, if I had to pick one, but. That's just an aside. I think John is just full blown screw everything. I'm just going to burn it all down. But <laughs> anarchy. anarchy. <laughs> I don't know what that word means, John, but I like how it sounds. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I mean, I agree with Nat, and and, and I did the same thing. I, I don't remember when, and I, you know, I just, uh, I just looked at Jesus and I said, okay, I'm taking away everything: the virgin birth, the resurrection, all the miracles. Uh, any kind of divine connection to a supreme being, father, figure, 
can I still follow this? And I, and I said, yes, I can. Um, the sad part is time after time after time, if you ask a Christian that, they're like, well, then what's there to follow? That's their answer to that. It's like, if I don't have miracles, if, I, if there is no divinity, then why am I following? I was like, that's problematic. That's really <laughs> problematic. Because I've taken away everything that can't be proven and left everything that to a certain extent can be, right? Uh, we don't know that he said everything that he said, but we do have no. some, there is some historical writings that, that do say that there was this man, Jesus, who lived at approximately this time. So for me, it's this idea of the cosmos that, and I look at it, I almost look at it scientifically now, you know, nothing can be ultimately destroyed. Everything is just converted to something else. So at some point, we're going to be converted after we die or whatever happens. Our, our being or whatever is going to be converted into something else. We're, we're still going to be part of this universe in some way. I don't have any clue what that means. And I hope that it's in a way that it brings us all together in some kind of cosmic whatever. But it might just be that I am now part of what envelops this universe and moves us forward to the point where we do this whole thing over again, right? We expand and we expand and then we contract and we contract and then there's another big bang and we start over again. I am also okay with that. I, I, I no longer care if I'm going to be walking on the streets of gold. <laughs> I rather would care about what I can do to give someone a little bit of what we quote unquote, quote unquote call heaven here now. Yeah, that's a concept I'm really attracted to is that this life right now is heaven or hell, depending on your attitude and your perspective and your behavior. And so, yeah. And once again, Jesus tells us to do this, right? To create heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. So yeah. again, we are following the words of this person. I had wrestled with, different labels to use for myself. My, I went to therapy after this, you know, huge crisis of faith. And she said, it would be helpful to have an answer because if you tell people you don't believe in God anymore, they're going to ask you, well, what do you believe? Or what are you then? And so I wrestled with several different labels, landing on the agnostic atheist kind of, because that seems the most straightforward. But Christian atheist is one I considered as well, because I do feel like I'm a secular Christian. You know, I still have all those values that I was raised in and all the the spiritual worldview I have is created from Christianity. It's my first language. It's going to be in my blood forever. And so I'm okay with saying, yeah, I took all this good stuff out of it. And I don't have to believe... For me, I don't have to believe in... Yeah, certainly all the kind of miracle, mystical stuff. The values still hold. And that's how I still want to live my life. So I still go to church. My husband is still identifying as a Christian and we were raising our kids in church. So I still go. And our church is very open-minded and really good about... They're not black and white and they don't try to tell people what to think. And I can respect the way that they are trying to teach us. And really, they're just, I think, trying to help us all be the best version of human we can be. And it's a version of human that I still want to be. So I'm okay still going there for the most part, just from a different motivation maybe now. Now, that's that's very interesting. Um, I personally can't set foot in church, but that's because <laughs> I've been traumatized. No, yes. um, I actually ended up in a church. I've only been in church once since uh, I actually, um, I actually was the pastor of a. I planted a church a few years ago, and we when we closed that down, um, I just I just couldn't do it, you know. <laughs> but we were we did a conference uh, for our publisher in uh, in Nashville. And it, they they hosted at this nice little fairly progressive church, and even though it was everything I would probably want in a church, if I was looking for a church, just mm -hmm. walking in it was triggering. I was like, oh, I don't know, man. I'm not sure if I yeah. can do this. You know? <laughs> but um, uh, we'll see. But I, I I ran into a I ran into a friend of the day, the, the uh, wife of a friend of mine who's a pastor, and she invited me to church, and she's like, "Well, just come hang out sometime." I'm like, you know what? No. Uh, <laughs> <Pass>. <laughs> told, of, of course, I told her, yeah, well, we'll see. Well, we'll see means, <laughs> nah, I don't think so. Um, but let, let's talk about this because one of the interesting things that you brought up among lots of the interesting things you brought up, but one of the, one of the ones that is, that, that, that resonates with me is one I've been wrestling with too. And this is this issue of this question of free will. And I know you tackle that in the book. So, um, let's talk about free will because personally I'm with you, um, 
I'm not a Calvinist in that sense that, you know, everything's predetermined by God. There's this deterministic, you know, element to say Calvinism, right? Where that's just the, your life has just been mapped out. Um, but the myth of autonomy, you know, of a purely autonomous anyone seems to be untenable. And I don't know if that's sort of where you landed, but somewhere in there we're like, listen, um, how we've at least framed the concept of free will is not something that, that is, that could be valid. But what, what, what do you say? Yeah, I, I think um, I've got a buddy who likes to stress my brain out thinking about some of these philosophical nice. questions. And so he made me read uh, Sam Harris's tiny little book on free will. And from the philo- philosophical point of view, it is interesting. You know, you say they've hooked people up to fMRI machines where they can see the brain, uh, blood flow to the brain and see what's happening while you're awake and conscious. And then they'll ask people questions and see what parts of the brain light up or, you know, do things uh, to their body and see what part of the brain lights up. And so in some of these studies, they'll ask somebody a question and before they begin to speak, I don't even know how to explain this well and I'm probably not going to get it right, but there's evidence that there's activity in the brain before they have even started to answer the question. Or if you think about, you know, when you have a thought, are you choosing to have that thought? Or does the thought just seem to pop into your brain? Certainly songs pop into my brain without my consent. And I'm <laughs> humming an annoying commercial all day long I, and I don't want movie it in there. <laughs> when completely unbidden, right? Right. So like, where do those come from? Because I didn't choose to have that thought. So that's to me some fascinating kind of more from the really heady philosophical angle of free will that could be argued. Maybe we're not as in charge as we think, or it's some subconscious process that we are not volitionally in control of that just arrives in our brain. But for me, I also asked on the practical side, say we do have free will, but did that my example from earlier, that enslaved woman living on someone's plantation, did she have the free will to marry who she wanted, to keep her children, to, you know, no, her free will was so constrained through circumstances. And is a person born downwind of a polluting factory in the bayous of Louisiana? Can they eat healthy food from their garden? Can they breathe clean? Like there's so many things that are happening to us outside of our control that affect our lives, that affect our our health and that affect our choices. So when I questioned the practicality of free will, maybe we have it, but we can't use it half the time, you know, or, uh, and especially in cases of people in less than ideal situations. Um, and if that's the case, and that was the excuse I was giving God to why he would let such horrible suffering happen in the world, when in the day-to-day use of free will, we're not really able to exercise it. It just made the excuse fall apart. Like, okay, God gave us free will to choose to love them or not. And yet this person doesn't have the free will to live the life they want. So if the free will is not really there, then the excuse is gone. Then why did God make the world this way and make it so terrible? Well, and then the human factor gets in the way too, right? So this is a really basic version of like not having all the facts. And I think that the the news is a very good, uh, politics is a really good thing of uh, hiding all the facts from us. But like if you're driving down the road and you free, you choose freely to t- make a left on a road and you end up in a, in a washed out road and fall in the river. You had the free will to make that left, but you didn't know the road was washed out. So is that really free will? So it's, it's this idea of you don't have all the facts. And we so never do. journalism, yeah. uh, politicians, they all skew us into a, into a very specific pigeonhole spot. And then we quote unquote make a free will decision from those facts to say, hate all Muslims because the news and the politics say that they're all, they're all, and this is in huge air quotes, they're all terrorists, right? Which is, we know is not true. So we make a quote unquote free will choice to not like any of them. Yeah, it's like free will within this very constrained right. environment. How free is that? Yeah. And that works within within the, the world of faith as well. You know, we are we are told by a pastor or someone in charge how our free will works. And then, we, and then, but we we feel like we have free will, and we're making this, we're having this conscious decision to stay on the straight and narrow or to sin, right? But we really don't because we don't have all the facts. Or is it even free will to say you can choose to love me? But if you don't, right? That might be exactly. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. Is that really a choice? Wait, wait, wait hold on. So, so wait a minute. I'm afraid to not love you. Absolutely. Uh-huh. But what if I don't love you? Oh, I'll torture you forever. You're going to burn. Oh, well, then I clearly choose to love you, right. I guess. Well, and, and then the, the faith community has done the same thing, right? In a smaller version. So you, you are free to disagree with the pastor. Oh, I'm free. You're to, also free to get the hell out. But you're free to leave because they're going to kick you out. So is and that I will it? say, I'll play devil's advocate for there are good pastors and good churches. Sure, oh, yeah, I absolutely. Church, my pastor has read my book. He's been promoting it and pitching me to other, you know. So there are good ones out there. It's not all pastors, not all <laughs> <Right>. churches, but, <laughs> but sadly, those are. But enough of them are. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it reminds me, you know, the only analogy I can draw. Well, not the only, but the one that pops into my head, unbidden, because apparently it's just part of my programming, <laughs> is that when my kids were little, I used to give them the illusion of free will mm-hmm. by offering them limited choices. Exactly. Like, you never ask a two-year-old, what do you want to eat for dinner? Mm-hmm. That's just stupid. <laughs> you say, would you like chicken nuggets or meatloaf? And they freely yeah. chose chicken nuggets. Great. And in their minds, hey, they made a free will choice, but they've made it from a, a limited option of, you know, a limited menu. And I feel like, like for most of us, I think probably for all of us, we're all choosing from the options that we're aware of that are available. Um, not knowing there's a whole secret menu we could be ordering off of, you know, they're, they're keeping the animal fries from us, John. They don't tell you this stuff on the board in and out. You don't know, you know, there's a flying Dutchman. There's the, come on, man. But what really got me rolling on a lot of this is I don't know how, how, if you've ever read, um, anything by Rene Girard. But if you ever get, so you ever get into, you want to, you want to, you want to mind fuck, um, <laughs> go, <laughs> go crawl into mimetic theory and oh. see how much of this stuff will mess with you because he's right, I think, on most of it. <laughs> but so for him, the, the, just the concept of free will is just out the window. It's just, and it's not, again, not, not because of anything d- deterministic, um, but simply because Every one of us are influenced in a million different ways, most of, most of which are at the subconscious level. Um, you're obviously informed by your culture. You're informed by your own experience. You're informed by your education or your lack thereof. You're informed by all kinds of things. And then some of us have the audacity to think, well, I just chose to be successful. No, you lucked into being, you know, John and I are well aware that as, you know, middle-aged, cisgendered white male, that we have won the lottery when it comes to a lot of this stuff, right? Um, not that we haven't struggled, but our struggles have not been the same. That, you know, hasn't, haven't had to overcome, you know, systemic, you know, oppression or, or prejudice. And, but that idea, although, is so baked into the American mythos that we are the rugged individuals. We are the, you know, the captains of our own fate and we are the ones ultimately responsible for whether we succeed or fail. That it's really hard. I think one of the things you mentioned, early on about like Christianity being your first language is so true, right? Because, and the fact that maybe like, I'd, I'd like to read that book. I need to read Sam Harris's book, but you know, the idea that some of these questions as they're answered, as we're even processing them subconsciously, they're, they're accessing places that we're not even aware exist before we even articulate the words to answer the questions that we were probably already going to answer that way. And so I just think, I think it's fascinating. And uh, but anyway, I would highly recommend if you ever have, if you have the time and you really want to screw with your brain some more, <laughs> I see Satan Fall Like Lightning by Rene Girard is one of the, uh, is, a, is, a, is a good place to run down the rabbit hole and see, uh, see wh- how far that takes you. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, off of what you were saying, I mean, I, and what you mentioned, so this idea of the, the American dream, which is to be a rugged individualist, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, is also the exact opposite of what Jesus is telling us to do, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why I think with you, the church that you're in and the churches that you kind of were in before kind of still work for you because they do teach this idea of community. Whereas I would say within most of the ultra-right evangelical fundamentalist churches, the idea of community has been hidden under a rug and you know you have to take care of yourself it's only you that can build yourself up but what it sounds like and, and i want to applaud your church for doing that is it sounds like they're a church that's open to questions open to ideas and open to a community even if these if the community disagrees and and how does that how does how is that working for you i mean because i i, I applaud you for staying into a church i have not stepped into a church in a long time 
yeah, it's definitely to the credit of my specific church that I can still go for sure. Um, so when when I was really starting to wrestle with some of these questions and get into some scary no man land, I went on a couple long pandemic walks <laughs> with my pastor. We met up outside and kept our distance, but we walked and talked for hours. And I told him every doubt, every question I was having. And he was not shocked by any of it. He had had most of the same questions himself. And I think the the thing that maybe sets that church apart is that they're humble. They're just willing to admit that they don't have ultimate answers. They don't know. And it's to them, it's worth being wrong on the side of of faith and of God than it is to just say, screw it and walk away. But yeah, so they're not intimidated by questions and doubts. They've done a sermon series on doubt. <laughs> We've had a science professor. Spokane has a bunch of colleges in town. There was a professor of science that came and did a sermon on science. You know how many churches are terrified of of science or won't you know admit to the truths of evolution, things like that. Um, and so yeah, they're just they're humble and they're not afraid to be real and ask questions. And I think that conservative example church that you gave, where it's more individual and rugged, and they're also not being authentic. And a lot of those places, you cannot be real and show struggle or show you know that you're not perfect. You have to put on the happy face and smile and everything's good at home when you go home and kids are being beat by their dads. You know, whatever it is, it's a, it's a, it becomes a big show. And so I think in places where any place, a church or any group where you can be authentic and real in the good and the bad, uh, that's a gift and that's a good kind of a place to be. So... I'm lucky that that's what our church is like. And I go a lot for the sake of my husband because this has all been very hard on him. And so that's kind of throwing him a bone to not totally upend our whole life and change our weekly routine. Um, But I do respect my church a lot and appreciate. And oftentimes there's still something I can get out of the sermon. Just my reason for applying the lesson is not because I think somebody's up there watching over my shoulder, but just because I think, yeah, that's... That's how I want to be as a person. So how do you deal with this then? Okay, so you still go to church, I'm assuming almost every Sunday. Um, we have little When there's a sermon that you disagree with. When there's a sermon that you disagree with. That is something you're like, this is, this is just bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because even, you know, I have a few friends who are pastors who are, you know, I'd say are on the more progressive side. But when we, and we'll have conversations and I'm like, yeah, I, I don't buy any of that. Uh, because you know they are still they still are connected to a god and a trinity and all that so there's going to be sermons on that right yeah yeah i pick and choose my battles there have been weeks where i email them after i can think of one specific example where uh we have several different teaching preaching pastors but one of them said something to the extent of the only way that a person could have hope or peace in life is through god i was like Raising my hand. Not true. I have peace and I feel hopeful about things and I don't have God. So in that one, I kind of pushed back and he even said right away, I was so, you know, appreciative. He's like, oh gosh, you're right. Like some of that Christianese still pops out of my mouth, he said. And I, I say things I don't even think through. It's just the language and the phrase. And you're right. Of course, there are people that don't have faith that still are have hope and, and peace. So he was able to, at least to me, one-on-one in the email, walk it back and be like, yeah, you're right. Sorry, my my bad. I flubbed it. Um, there was another week recently that one of the other pastors was talking and the whole sermon, I was just cringing. The whole thing was about <laughs> God's omnipotence and power and how we need to remember that. And Jesus isn't just our buddy, but God is the God of the universe who molded mountains out of clay. And the whole time I'm just thinking, okay, well, then they suck. That God is an asshole because right. if they're that powerful, what the hell is happening to all these people in Gaza right now or the Ukraine? Like, why aren't they using that power to to stop at least a little bit of the pain? So I just sat on that one. I didn't feel like, you know, poking the nest that time. Yeah, but. that's that's probably going to be a larger conversation, right? <laughs> Than just, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's funny because, uh, so a friend of ours, uh, Thomas J. Ord, wrote a book recently and... Um, he coined this phrase am- amipotence. So mm. A-M-I being the prefix for love. And so he's pushing back on the notion that God is omnipotent. Okay. Because, and he would have said just what you said. Because if God is omnipotent, 
in the, in the classical way in which we've been raised to think of, or at least to frame or think of, of omnipotence, then he is capricious because he can do this, but chooses not to do this. He's mercurial and an asshole who favors some and doesn't others. Yeah, then I guess our works matter. We better be earning those points. <laughs> right, right. So for him, it's like, that's, that's, that is not a sustainable position to say. As a matter of fact, he would say, like the Bible doesn't even really ever say that. We've, we've malformed words and we've, we've, we've read into the text in a lot of places. So for him, it was less about God's controlling power and more about, um, um, God's, God's non, uncontrolling power that's, that's, um, that's centered around love. So his, the, and I'm like, okay, I can buy it. And it, it comes with its own set of problems, obviously, right? No, there's no theology that, that, that completely goes, oh man, I got away from all these problems. And didn't also introduce 25 different ones. But at least from, for, from where I'm standing, the questions that were raised by that are better than the questions raised by the other. Does that make sense? Like if I have to, if I have to part ways with this idea of omnipotence in order to rescue the character and nature of a God I, I would like to believe in, uh, this has better questions than, well, then why do, you know, children get brain tumors? Well, you know, because God's omnipotent. Well, why then? Why can't he? Why doesn't he just heal them? Or, oh, how about make it so they didn't get the tumor in the first damn place? Right, change DNA um, to not mutate something. that way. How, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> and so he would say, you know, that well, God, God can't, and that's the title of his, the book that came before this one was God can't, because in his worldview, God cannot, just cannot interact unilaterally in the world. That's not the nature and character of God to do that. Um, that is our job to, 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 to partner with God and do things um, acting as his hands and feet, like we've said a couple of different times. So again, comes with a, t- <laughs> comes with a t- <laughs> set of problems, all of that. Because the second you have to presuppose a God that you can't prove or demonstrate, uh, you've, you, you have walked into a minefield of, of questions <laughs> that are ultimately unanswerable. But Right. And that's where I'm like, I'm like no matter how you slice it, a world, a universe with God or a universe without God makes no sense. <laughs> if it is just science and the Big Bang, what was happening before? What set off the Big Bang? Where did all that material come from? Like, how and why did that happen? And if it's God, how did this extremely complex, elevated being exist before any material universe existed first and then made it all from scratch? So like, either way, it's bananas that were here. <laughs> And it makes no sense. So I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that I happened to be alive, that my little self was born. And I'm trying to make the most of it. And I'm trying to let go of needing to have answers and needing to know why and where it came from. I don't know, but I am here. Apparently, I seem to exist. And lately, you know, I I love science and I I don't know enough about it, but I'm fascinated by, you know, like uh, things like, you know, um, like, like the Big Bang and that, that version of creation and how that happened. And like, but all of those, they all eventually land on a question that is ultimately unanswerable. Yeah. The core of it all is a mystery. So we just got to rest on it, that. But it doesn't leave me, you know, bereft of any hope because I can't answer the questions. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I was watching, um, a short interview with Ricky Gervais, who is, you know, a very famous atheist and also hilariously funny guy. And, uh, but, it, but, but essentially the, the accusation always leveled at atheists is, well, if there's no life after death, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. And his, you know, his answer was pretty brilliant, which was like, well, if this is all there is, then you've just raised the value of this time and space astronomically. Like, I think, I think people who are focused on a, on an eventual afterlife can cheapen the here and now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then you can put up with all kinds of crap and also, Tell other people they should put up with all kinds of crap because don't worry when you die, it, yeah. this will all be don't made well, better. you know. So mm-hmm. and so he's like, listen for me, this this is all I get in my worldview. These few years of life are all I have. So it's pushed me to a place where I have to value that time and I have to esteem it in a different way than I would if I well I'll just get to do this again, you know, <laughs> in some sweet by and by. I'm like, you know what? That's yeah, it's not wrong. You know, I think it. It has value, but the subtitle of my book is "Resurrecting a Spirituality of Love and Wonder," and that's to me this worldview that maybe this is it and we're just here. Exactly that. It makes me feel so much more motivated and more grateful and more inspired to make the most of this life. 
And yeah, the question of, well, what does it even matter if there's no eternity? I don't think our lives are only set up to be performative. Does it only count if someone's watching? Like, can I just want to live a good life because I do for my own self? So yeah, I've, I've found it to be... I was motivated before to be a good Christian and to please God because I wanted God's approval and God to love me and all of that. Uh, now I'm even more motivated to live my life to the fullest, which for me includes looking around me to see who's struggling and helping to, you know, raise the tide to lift all the ships kind of thing. It's, I, it didn't cause me to sink into hedonism or nihilism. It made me... Right, right. Or like totally, like just completely become nihilistic and Mm -hmm. well, nothing matters. We're all just going to die and turn into dust. (laughs) Right. It's like, no, everything matters. Doesn't it also, I mean, for me, it makes, I feel I'm more authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, That I am not doing, you know, I'm not, doing this nice thing to earn the points to get the better spot in heaven. I'm not doing this so my pastor sees me being a better person. I'm not doing it for that. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. Right. I'm doing it because I see a homeless person and they, they're hungry and I go buy them a burger because I want them to have a better day. Right. You know, it's not it's not fixing their world, but it's fixing that moment. Yeah, but if you don't film that and put it on TikTok, John, then it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, that's why I keep messing up. You have, to, you have to have the camera rolling all the time, and you have to make sure that you know that you were. Well, and that's funny you should say that because that isn't that how we lived? That that there was a camera rolling all the time. Yeah. Because all the time, at some man. point we're gonna sit in front of God and He's gonna play back our film of everything we did. And oh Christ, well, that scared mm-hmm. me. Still kind of like if that's real. Fuck this. Oh, yeah, I'm scared. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. Like, I, you know, yeah. I don't. I don't believe in hell, but if that real is played, I'm probably going there. Well, that that would. I think that just would be hell. To have sit there and watch yeah. your life, I can go. Yeah, that might be yeah. really. Yeah. This is the best uh-huh. use of our time, God. Really, <laughs> um, you want to watch me do that? No, I'm just gonna, <laughs> it's gonna be an exorbitant amount of time of me, like in the in the bathroom. But um, I think he's gonna be bored and disgusted. But you made me, God. It's your fault. You could have you could have designed this better. My wife and I are getting older now, you know, and we keep lamenting all of our aches and all. The, and we're both like at this place, like God could have designed this whole thing better. <laughs> Some of this yep. makes no goddamn sense. Like, why do I have 18 miles of intestines in me where something could go wrong at every turn? This seems like a bad design, but That was sure. one of my sticking points to give up the idea of God was learning about human evolution and how yeah. slapdash we are. All these Very. random mutations over time that made sense a long time ago, but now they're not working out well for us. Our feet are not designed optimally to be a creature that walks on two legs, all kinds of And we still have vestigial tails for Christ's sake. What do we do? (laughs) (laughs) If God made us out of the clay, that was a really good way to do it. (laughs) And shaped us with organs that no longer serve a purpose. Okay, I Uh got you. Um, That actually is for me. I've, uh, John knows this about me, and I've shared this with listeners, but I have this tendency to go like down rabbit holes on YouTube. (laughs) And so I've gone down to, you know, and so for quite a while, I was listening to almost exclusively podcasts about from a, a really brilliant a uh, lady named Erica, but she calls herself the Guts of Gibbon on YouTube. But she's a really, she's, you know, a young doctoral student of evolutionary biology. Mm, and cool. she's fascinating. And I've learned so much just going, you know, I've always, because most of my Christian life, we were taught to just dismiss that out of hand. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just a lie. That's just a lie of the devil trying to tell you that you, you know, that you were related to a monkey. And, mm-hmm. you know, and she's like, yes. well, not kind of, <laughs> yeah. I mean, common yeah. ancestor, yes, you know. But yeah. um, so just actually making up for huge gaps in my education mm-hmm. because we weren't taught that. And if we were taught it in school, it, was, it wasn't ever reinforced anywhere else, right? I mean, they may approach the subject and then you go to Sunday school and they go, hey, no matter what they tell you in that long-haired school of yours, <laughs> we, 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 we are made from no monkeys, you know? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, clearly you still are. But uh, anyway, but the, <laughs> So that's cool. I mean, so so learning about, you know, and, and actually and having the the humility and whatever, however you would call it, to listen to an atheist who I would normally, you know, who we've done a really piss poor job of of caricaturing over the years, right? Mm-hmm. Through really, really bad Christian movies like God's Not Dead, um, where we paint every atheist as atheist as angry, God hating, you know, nihilists who <laughs> like, oh my gosh, like, no, there's some very thoughtful and very sincere and very honest atheists who are like, listen, I just, this, I can't, 
you know, I, I just can't make that leap with you, you know, but who mm-hmm. don't have any particular issue with, who was the guy we had, uh, Hemet Mehta? Is that his name, John? The, the friendly yeah. atheist? Love that yeah. conversation we had with him. Cause yeah. you know what? I would much rather surround and talk about things like that with you than 99% of evangelical Christians who, who either are afraid or don't want to have the conversations because, you know, for some reason that those are, it's threatening. Um, yeah, they're threatening. Exactly right. And they come back real defensive, you know, but. So I applaud you for asking the hard question. I think it's great. It's good well, stuff. Thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, we're almost at the end of our time. I mean, um, I'm trying to think if I have one more good question for you. One more? Have you had any? <laughs> oh, come on, <laughs> I'm now. just. I'm, uh, I, I, I really, I really did enjoy the book. I mean, I, I, I want to tell, I want to say that I want yeah. everyone to to go out and buy the book. I guess on a, on a last note is because uh, you you talk about this that you're you're someone who loves to read. Uh, and this is where you get a lot of this information. How did the books that you found as you were going through all this uh, help you along the way? Uh, like I, I think we talked about off before we started recording, you and I have very similar authors that we both like. And what? how did they help you get to the point where you are now? For a long time, there were the progressive Christian voices that gave me the permission to start asking some questions. Uh, I'm a big fan of like Sarah Bessie and Jen Hatmaker and Rachel Held Evans. Their books, especially coming from, I think for me as a woman to hear another woman wrestling and having these conversations was very liberating. And to just see people, en- see people engaging with their faith in that way. Because so many Christians, it is kind of just, you swallow things at face value and you don't ask a lot of questions. So that was pivotal for me to read books by women who were asking questions and coming up with some different conclusions. But then ultimately... I'm I'm a big nerd. I read a lot of random books. And so it was I read, picked up a book on paleoanthropology. And that's the one that made me think about human evolution and think, gosh, it doesn't look like there was necessarily a divine being in charge of that whole process. Or so some of the random books I picked up did end up kind of leading me astray, I guess you could say. And it's hard to know if it was chicken or the egg. Did that book affect me or was I already having these thoughts and the book confirmed where I was at? I don't know. Um, again, that free will question, did it happen to me or did I choose it? Who knows? But um, yeah, books I think are are magical. I think books can be such a great, either an insight into my own subconscious and what I was already wes- wrestling with. And it just highlights, you know, these processes that I was having, um, or they can definitely stretch and and challenge you in new ways. So the, that was the reason I wrote my book was because I did not have an example. And I'm sure they're out there, but I couldn't find them of somebody with my story who had a very deep, profound faith and had now totally walked away. There was still a lot of those progressive voices that were wrestling with God, but landed, sounds like kind of somewhere you guys were at where eh, there's still some version of God I can hold on to. And the more scientific voices that were completely secular with an atheist worldview, they just didn't understand where I had come from and where I had been and how hard it was to walk away from. And there was a huge amount of grief involved the original title of my book was Grieving God because it was a death. You know, it was a loss of relationship, of identity. And so that's ultimately why I wrote my book because I I know the power books have to help people feel seen and heard. And so when I couldn't find it, I wrote one for myself and hoped that it would maybe find some other folks who had been in the same boat and would be able to feel seen and heard and understood. So it's been doing that to at least a small degree, which has been really cool and humbling to watch. Uh, I, yeah, I find myself, I think, very similar that I, I can't answer the question is, am I reading this book <laughs> because subconsciously this is what I, this is the direction I'm going or did I read this book and now I'm like, okay, now I can mm-hmm. go this, now I can go this direction because I would say when it came to systemic racism that I was very con- conscious and very specific on what I was reading. You know, um, but outside of that, when it came to more scientific stuff, they, that, that's the ones where I would agree with you. Like, I don't know if it was me first yeah. or the book first. Um, and I, I, I kind of find myself in this very similar situation where I'm like, I, I just, you know, I, I don't think, I, I don't think I'm as far as long as you are, uh, but I'm probably not that far behind. <laughs> I am, I do, I would call myself an agnostic, but I'm, Getting to the point where it's harder and harder for me to explain a version of God that that can't exist, that that I'm okay with, that I'm comfortable with, 
So, you know, in five years, who knows? Who knows where I'll be? Right. 15 years, I could be back in a fundy cult. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one can hope. I mean... (laughs) Can't predict the future. (laughs) It'd be like, well, it'd be like the Matrix, right? You know, just put me back in the Matrix. Make me forget. Make me forget that I that I had all these problems. I know the stake I don't care. Is real, but I just gonna sit <laughs> no. here and ignorance is bliss. Just plug me back in. Right. Yeah, I'd be lying if I said that. If I if I told you that I, I hadn't actually had that thought once or twice. Like mm. you know, there were parts of my life that were easier before. Oh, you the know, black and white is very I mean, comfortable. Gosh, I, I sort of miss some of that. You know, mm. wide eyed. You know black and white binary thinking that, and that certainty that comes along with knowing you're right and everybody else is fucking wrong. Yeah, it feels good. <laughs> I was an asshole, but, but <laughs> I, and I don't think I was happy, but it was easier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, that's whole, that whole, you know, choice between a comfortable lie and a, you know, yeah. and a hard truth, you know, and so mm-hmm. I've landed outside the matrix going, okay, well, the, I would rather have the, the, the hard truth and the comfortable lie. But there are times when I just want to eat that fake steak and go, mm, that's a good filet, John. That's good. Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Um, if you've made it this far and uh, you're still listening, which you should be, we're so glad. Go go to your local bookstore. Go online if you must. Give Jeff Bezos your money if you absolutely have to. Sadly, Amazon has become sort of the uh, ubiquitous world of book selling and buying. But um but get the, get a get a copy. Read the book. I think you'll really enjoy it. I think it will inform you. Uh, and I think you'll find some places, lots of places of resonance there. So we're so glad that you joined us. Thanks for for hanging out and spending the time. Absolutely, and for yeah, writing an awesome book. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this is not church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit Patreon.com/slash This Is Not Church where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.